0: If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that uh, we've been working our way through this little, um, this short letter. It's it's the earliest, probably the earliest letter that Paul wrote. And um, it's kind of interesting because it's probably written around 20 or 30 years after Jesus had uh, died and resurrected. So it's really very early in the church's life. And by now, sort of 20 years, the gospel has moved, in a sense, little communities of people have moved from Jerusalem and uh, what we would call Israel, and they're making their way, in a sense, into Europe. And they're going through, if you can visualize this, if you can't, it's not helpful, but if you can, they're going up through Turkey and what we would call Turkey, and then they're starting to edge into Greece and they'll make their way through Greece up Italy and eventually there'll be a little community of people in places like Rome and you can see the gospel advancing west towards, um, towards what we would you know Europe and and into France and then through into, uh, in, into ourselves and you get this sense that this good news has become really very mobile Christianity could have really easily have remained as a little group within Judaism. I don't know if you know much about Judaism, but you know that they've got, like if you go to Broughton um, or to Cheatham Hill, you'll see certain Jews who have the ringlets and they dress as though, uh, you know, that sort of very distinctive dress with uh, sort of white stockings, men have white stockings on and, and sort of like, I don't know what the words are for any of this clothing, um, but long uh, jackets and fur hats. And that's one version of Judaism. But there's another version that's much more liberal, that's much more, uh, sort of, in a sense, less distinct in some ways, but still Jewish. And it would have been really easy for Christianity simply to have become a subsect of Judaism. In the same way as you've got Orthodox Jews and liberal Jews and Reformed Jews, it could have been that you'd had Christian Jews, just Christian Jews. And some people really were very happy about that. They were kind of, that was okay, because you would still be Jewish, you'd just be a follower of Jesus. But one of the things that happened really early on was that it became really evident that what the Spirit of God wanted to do was to break out of mere Judaism and actually include people who were Gentiles, people who didn't own the faith, the historic faith of the Jews. In other words, to go to new places, to places that you might not expect. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, is is the vanguard of this. Paul is a driven man in many ways he's a driven man because he understands this he gets it he gets the idea that faith is not just to be remaining within this sort of subsective of, subset of judaism but is actually designed to be a global faith and that's what drove him that's why he spent so much of his life on the move because everywhere he went he would go and he'd see little cells of people pop up Who would become uh, churches? Who would carry that faith? Well, I wasn't going to say any of that, but it's true. (laughs) Actually, it's true, and actually, it's quite important. It's true and important um, because actually, it suggests something about what faith, what the Christian faith is supposed to be. What's in our DNA? And the DNA of Christianity is not for you to live just a settled life with a little bit more comfort. But there's something in the DNA of Christianity that says, actually, this is supposed to be a spreading faith. Well, this little church in Thessalonica, what we would call Greece, was one of those such churches. Let's pick it up in verse 17, chapter 2. Paul's writing to them and says, Brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned, by being separated from you for a short time, in person but not in thought. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what's our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Isn't it you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who's our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to encourage and to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we'd be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy's just now come back to uh, to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith but now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what's lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So as I said, what's Paul's joy? What's really brought him joy? Well, what's brought him joy is that these people in Thessalonica, in Greece, have come to faith because, as I've just said, he had this idea that what would be going on is that these li- there'd be little collections of people who own the name of Jesus, who worship Jesus, who recognize the implication of the resurrection, and that there'd be these little groups spread throughout the world. As I said, Paul was a global apostle. He had this global understanding of what the gospel would be doing. And he had this in his mind, that wherever he might go, or wherever the gospel went, there'd be little groups of people. And they, in turn, would replant. So he, he always imagined that what would happen is you'd have a little church, a little group of people, and what you've got to keep on remembering is that these groups were probably only 20, 30, 40, 50 people maximum because they had to find places they could meet. They didn't own buildings. They met in homes. Or they met uh, in in little atriums in sort of like backyards. I mean, backyards is a bit not Salford, but they would have called them atriums, but in sort of areas that would be sort of like sh- uh, coverings, but, but outdoors, effectively. They would have met around meals probably every week, sharing a meal together. So you suddenly get this idea of the sort of numbers that you were talking about. These are not megachurches of hundreds or thousands of people. These are churches, well, probably much more like the collection of people here, in this room today, but they would be, you would be the only Christians in Salford, okay? And Paul has this brilliant optimism about the Spirit, because you might suggest, if we were the only Christians in Salford, you might go, we're not doing so good, are we? you know, we're, we're up against it, folks. There's 250,000 people in Salford and there's 30, 40, 50 of us. <sighs> I'm not sure this is going to take off. But Paul said, Oh, no, 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 no. I can see that actually what's going on here is for the sake of the world, that what was going on in Thessalonica might be elsewhere. Paul had this clear idea that was written by John in his gospel that the reason Jesus came was because God, listen to the bigness of this, God so loved the world. Now, when preachers preach this text from John chapter 3, often what they do is, if you were the only person in the world, God would still love you, which is true. But actually, the danger of saying that is it reduces it down. As though God sent Jesus for me. Well, in one sense that's true, but it's only because you and I are part of the world. God had a plan and purpose for the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God's plan for the world is that they might understand the good news and not perish. God so loved the world that he could see that what we were doing, what we've always done, is followed the inclination away from him. But that inclination, that sort of the, you know, like if you, I have the capacity to talk about things that I know little about. But you know, in bowl, bowls crown green balls I'm looking at you and you're going to tell me everything that I'm saying wrong so please save it till coffee in crown cream in crown green balls this is the only I don't know much about it but this is what I do know is that in the ball itself there is a weight that ball is weighted it's a bias and it'll go one way or the other and the cleverness is Paul was an expert at this in Days gone by, you could get the ball to go where you want because it's about angling the bias. There's a bias within us that says we want to move away from God. There's a bias that leads us away into independence. It's called original sin. That bias that says, I'll do it on my own. And because of that, that way, the way of independence, ironically, leads to perishing it's kind of like you get what you want life led by yourself but God so loved the world that he sent his son that in a sense Jesus would do something about the bias he would come and say I'll take the penalty for your independence and I will enable you to live with a corrected balance for God That's what the Spirit is doing within you now. Those of you that are followers of Jesus, what the Spirit is doing is overcoming the bias of independence by saying, actually, the Spirit calls you sons and daughters. The Spirit wants you to live for God's glory. The Spirit is enabling you to live well. God so loved the world. He didn't send His Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. That's what Paul understood about the gospel. And it's the same for us. So how does it work? How does it work out in practice? I thought I'd just reflect on this about how we've tried to work this through in a practical place called the Duchy Estate. Now that, for some of you in the room, is where you live. Now the interesting thing is, for us, as a church, we... Um, and, and some people within the church were in a moment where they were and perhaps. It, and I'm talking about Mary, really. Um, but a, a while ago, uh, probably 18 months ago, 12 months ago, she began to feel that God was calling us to look at what was happening on the Duchy estate. Those of you not sure where I'm meaning, um, if you're not sure. Um, it's just over the, the, the dual carriageway. It's in, it's in the uh, down bank lane. Down, yeah, they're not going to what bank lane. is either um, But it's just over the dual carriageway. It's a little estate that's just on its own. And Mary had this sense of, I think God's asking us to do something there. Now, when you feel God's asking you to do something, what do you do next? Well, we prayed about it. Prayed for a, quite a while about it. And uh, it just wouldn't go away. And then we act. And, well, let me tell you what we prayed. Because sisters is the some of you help. We prayed. We had nobody in our church living in that estate. And what we didn't want to do is just look like people who parachute in and parachute out again. So what you've got to pray is, God, will you give us some people who live there who are like the gatekeepers? I don't want you to feel pressure is rising upon you folks who live there, but you are the answer to our prayers. I think I said it a few weeks ago, but the reason... We would believe you're with us is because we prayed that you would be. We didn't know you, obviously, but we prayed. We weren't stalking you. That's just weird. But we prayed. But we prayed that you would be with us. Ah. But Okay, Krista. Let me just. You can tell the truth after, but let me just go through my bit first. Because the second thing is then. You're quite right. The second thing, after you've prayed, what do you do? You've got to act. In a sense, there's no point just praying about something. It's kind of like, well, you can ask God to do what only God can do, but you've got to act. So what we did is we got a whole bunch of folks uh, who were uh, from the Bible college, and they came up for a week, and they knocked on doors. They introduced themselves. Really simple. And um, we did that event where Ian... Entertained the whole of the estate by singing various cover versions of of, of people. That probably was the highlight. It was probably the breakthrough that we were all looking for. Um, uh, We did face painting. We did some craft stuff. We just acted. And then what did we do? We watched. We just watched to see what might happen. And relationships started to build with some people. And so what we did again was then we prayed again. And we acted again. We did something at Christmas. Smaller, but intentional. And then we watched again. And now there's a little group that's going to be beginning to um, start at Christa's house on there. Because, because 18 months ago or thereabouts, when Mary started to get that sense of this is where God might want to do something, that's the beginning of the outcome of that process. Now, I I tell you that because you might be interested, but I actually tell you that because I think, if we think about it, that's how things happen. Now, this is the challenge to you. And what about you? Okay, what about you? So, you're all in different places during the week and, uh, but, you're, but pretty much all of you will be in some sort of relational context, either it's work, or it's a, a club, or it's a community, but, but how might God want to use you? What does God want you to do, and how do you actually go about it? Well, the first thing is, you need to know, God, where is it that you really want to use me? Where is it? Now in one sense he wants to use you everywhere but it might be that there's somewhere very specific that God lays on your heart. Where? And then you've got to pray. And Maybe one of the things you pray first is God could you link me up with one more Christian here? If you're at work give me one more Christian. Or if you're in a club give me one more Christian. Now it might be surprising to you once you start praying that prayer to find out who's there. You might want to pray, God, can you open a conversation that I might find one other person? And then it's the question, what do we do? What do we do? Well, you've got Valentine's Day coming up. And in certain contexts, you might want to think, is there something we could do around? Now, I'm not talking about sending anonymous cards to everybody. <laughs> That's going to get you into trouble, and it's going to end badly. But actually, when the commercial world goes mad about love, we've got something to say about love, actually. The Bible has a lot to say about love that is grounded and earthed and not merely romantic, sentimental feeling. You've got Easter coming up. And uh, it is the case that in, in, in lots of different places, people have experimented with it and just taken in a whole bunch of hot cross buns and said, it's a gift. And uh, you'll be surprised how many people, A, don't know why the connection is, and B, what's going on there. But how do you act? And then watch. It's not all down to you. God's at work here, but what God does, he takes you, he gives you a sense of where he wants to use you, he gives you a sense of what might you do, a creativity, and then says, okay, now watch what I'll do now. Just trust me. Just trust me. Because there will be a moment we've got to act again, but just trust me at the moment. And in a sense, I'm I'm kind of intrigued to know what might happen amongst us if we were able to connect with one another and go, so what is going on there? I look at Faye. Faye spoken publicly about your real heart for your school. And I'm, I'm not, you know, don't want to embarrass Faye, but Faye senses this. Real call to be an agent of the kingdom in the school. Now it might be you go well. I I don't know what I can do, but one of the things you could do is say, well, actually, I, I can ask Faye how she's getting on. I can pray with Faye. I can pray for Faye, and I can pray that Faye might find others who are, feel similarly in her school to see what might happen there, etc., etc., etc. In the sheltered dwelling or in the independent living place where you live, or but what might God be asking of you? Two weeks ago, when I was in church, you mentioned about your community group. It's kind of like interesting, isn't it? To say, well, "What would it look like if you had a little cell, a little group of people who would be worshippers of Jesus in your in that residential community?" And the first thing you might want to pray is, "God, give us another Christian." You might want to be more specific. Give us a sensible Christian, um, <laughs> but because <laughs> sometimes you get a Christian, "No, no, no, that's not awful back to the thing at the beginning because is the faith just to give you comfort or is the faith to be mobile is the faith just to give you a sense of belonging or is the faith something that God got hold of you in order that you might be used as part of this globalizing effect of the Christian faith I think it's a second. And I think most of us in the room would, if push comes to shove, would feel inadequate to know what to do. But the point is, God's at work and He's wanting to use us and capture us into the process that He's, that he's doing. He simply wants to use us. What does it take to make contact and relationships In places you don't know anybody, it takes prayer, it takes face painting, it takes Ian to sing some songs, it takes a little bit of action, it takes relationships that matter. And God could actually do something. But it's fragile. Paul's aware that this is very fragile. And and what he's talking about here in in Thessalonians, the bit we read, is his fear that it's too fragile. Is too fragile. And one of the reasons that when you get involved in something for God, it's fragile, is because there's an enemy. And the enemy um, that Paul talks about is like this virus that gets into the system. He talks about Satan, the enemy. And he, he, uh, 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 he doesn't talk about computer viruses for obvious reasons, but it's kind of like, it's a, a way of understanding, how does the enemy work? Well, what he does is he gets into, like a Trojan horse, he comes into what God is wanting to do and then tries to spread a virus of, and it's kind of interesting what we call it in, 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 in these sort of circles, they call it malware, bad, bad stuff. It takes something that should work really well, but actually you get this invasion of a virus, a computer virus, that then spreads its ten- tentacles and starts to corrupt what should work fine. It's a good image, I think, of what Satan is wanting to do when the people of God say, we're going to do something here. The enemy comes in and says, actually, can I do something here that would corrupt what God might want to do? And uh, Paul explains what will, what was his concern? He said, I was really concerned. Verse 18. We wanted to come to you. Paul had this concern. He said, I was so concerned about you. I needed to come and, and visit you. And uh, But listen, we wanted to come, but Satan blocked our way. How? Well, it could have been officialdom. It could have been travel. It could have been illness. It could have been anything. But he says, but the, the one who would want to corrupt the relationships got in the way when I wasn't able to come. Chapter 3, verse 3. We were Um, We sent Timothy then, he said, because I couldn't come. I sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. And the unsettling that was happening in Thessalonica seems to be that they were being persecuted, that people were out to disrupt them. Verse 4, following that, in fact... um, Uh, Verse 5, For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Three things that Paul suggests Satan was wanting to do in the relationships and in what was happening in the church. That somehow relationships would be disturbed, that people would be discouraged, and the, the enemy would tempt you, would pull you away from what God wanted to do to put it really bluntly what the enemy's goal is for those of us who follow Jesus what the enemy of our faith and all the way through the bible there's very this very clear understanding that there's God who created all things but actually there's a corrupting influence within the world called satan the devil whatever and that the what the enemy of God is trying to do is to bring people into places of hopelessness. That's, I think, that's the fundamental goal of Satan. He wants you to make you feel hopeless. Because if you feel hopeless, you'll not do anything, you literally lose hope, you literally think there's no point, and then at best, you'll live for yourself, at worst, you'll just give up. The more I've thought about this, I'm, I'm, I'm actually more and more convinced that I think that's the fundamental thing that the devil wants to, to, the fundamental place the devil wants to get you into is a place where you just think it's, there's no point. There's just no point. Paul was aware of this. It didn't frighten him. He kind of expected it. But he was aware the relationships needed to be built to counteract this sort of stuff. You need other people with you. You need someone who's alongside you. You need someone who will stand with you. You need someone who will watch out for you. Paul, when I could stand it no longer, my fear, my anxiety... And it's kind of interesting that Paul had this big fear that the Thessalonicians, the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, he had this big fear that it might have all been for nothing. His fear was wrong. Because he sent Timothy and Timothy came back and said, "Do you know what, folks? they're doing fine." And I kind of get a lot of encouragement by that, because if Paul can fear stuff that ends <laughs> up not being true. Explains why I fear things that end up not being true. Paul had a big fear, but actually, God was doing something in that little group of people. The enemy had not won. So, in the light of the first challenge, where are you and what might God be asking you to do? What are you praying about and what might you be asked to do and what are you watching for? Is the other question. How are your relationships? How are the strength, uh, what's the strength of the relationships that you have together? The need to connect. The need to take risks with one another. You're not going to get all your friendships just from within one church, but the church, the local church, becomes a place where you can find some of those relationships, but this is the challenge. As the church does grow, it becomes more difficult because there's more people that you don't know and you can feel a little overwhelmed and think, I'm not sure who to connect with anymore. So you've got to keep on working at the relational stuff. Even when the easiest thing would be to retreat. Because people need you. They need you to watch for them. They need, you need them to watch for you. Paul writes to the Thessalonians. and He writes about his deep desire that what God has done in that little church would be replicated. I just wonder, what might it look like here? Last week, uh, I wasn't here because I was in Chichester, which is not Salford. But it is nice. In the morning, I was in a Baptist church, and it was interesting to see what had happened in that Baptist church. Larger than us, but um, on that Sunday morning... When I was there, I have this effect, 50 people weren't there. <laughs> There's a pattern emerging. <laughs> and the reason that 50 people who love Jesus, who belonged to that Baptist church, weren't there is that they're never there on that Sunday of the month. Because about 12 months ago, 50 of them decided they would hire the local school gym and two trainers and opened it up for families to do sport on a Sunday morning, led by the church. So what they do is they do 50 minutes of various classes and sport, and then they have a a half-time team talk. They have muffins and coffee. That sounded a bad idea to me. And then the second half, they do more sport, and they get 60 to 70 people who don't come to church to join the 50 who do go to church. Because they do they've got that group going they've got a smaller group who do Bible and ba- um Bible and butties in a pub on a Sunday morning once a month they've got another group that do crap there's lots of th- they've got about half a dozen different groups of people who said actually this is what we could do together actually from here now the interesting thing in thinking it through I'm not suggesting we we ought to I'm just saying this is an example of what Christians elsewhere are doing but I was thinking back, do you remember I spoke? One time about um, the fact that we've got an invitation to go to Charles' house. And I asked whether any of you would be interested, and zero. Don't make you feel guilty, but that's the reality. Nobody came back. And nobody came back because you're all busy. You understand that. But actually, what would it look like if some of you said, well, actually, once a month we could go on a Sunday morning. We don't need to, we'll, we'll forego church to go there and do church with them. Now, you've got to, if you do it, you've got to do it because you feel it's what God's called you to. You've got to pray a you've got to watch, you've got to act, you've got to, you, you've got to do it for the long term. You can't do it two weeks and then, oh, I've had enough of that. But I'm just intrigued to know, what happens if you get a missional mindset that goes, I wonder what God might want for us? Maybe God might spark some stuff, stuff off. The enemy is still at work, but he's not going to win because God so loved the world, that he sent Jesus. Father God, thank you that there's not one of us that you look at and you say, I can't use you. There's not one of you and not one of us that you look at and you give up on. And Lord, we know, some of us in the room really know that the fight against hopelessness is very real and therefore the fight against the enemy is really real, that corrupting influence that comes in. But Lord, we want to be used by you, and we want to see, certainly want to see the gospel expand. And Lord, I want to pray for the estate that we've been focusing on for the last uh, few months down on the duchy. We want to pray that your blessing might rest upon that estate. I want to pray for those folk who are with us today, who we didn't know six months ago, that, Lord, you might use them as agents of the kingdom in the place where they live. Lord, we want to pray specifically for the new group that begins, that, Lord, you might take it and use it for your glory and something new would be birthed. But, Lord, for the rest of us, in our community groups, in our schools, working with prisoners and people on the margins, working in our offices, just where we find ourselves, Lord, will you take us and make us agents of your kingdom, we pray. We ask it in your name.